This is a Rooster Teeth production. December 20th, 2008. Continental Airlines Flight 1404, a Boeing 737 with 115 people on board, is preparing to take off from Denver, Colorado on a flight bound for Houston, Texas. The plane is preparing to take off from runway 34 right with a crosswind coming from their left. As the plane begins accelerating for takeoff, the captain must apply right rudder inputs to keep the plane centered on the runway. Before they can gain enough speed to take off, the plane rolls off the left side of the runway. The crew desperately tries to slow the plane down, but it briefly becomes airborne before slamming back into the ground. The right engine catches fire and everyone scrambles to exit the burning plane. What happened to cause this aircraft to leave the runway? Could something like this happen again? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. Welcome. We're back. We got another episode, a fairly recent one. Before we get into the meat of it, as always, I want to remind everyone to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. Give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe check out some of our merch at store.roosterteeth.com. You know, all the regular business stuff got to get out of the way. If you've never checked out our merch, then you should because it's pretty cool. We have like cool shirts and uh i like wearing the black box down shirt and not just because i'm one of the hosts of the show <laughs> i do too it's cool it, like it's they got cool designs and uh got a cool little uh, laptop thingy on my laptop i like to show off you mean a sticker yes that <laughs> uh, we're in for a good one today all right so we're dealing with continental airlines flight 1404 today this was a passenger flight, like I said, from Denver International Airport to George Bush Intercontinental Airport in Houston. Almost 13 years ago, this was back on December 20th, 2008. Uh, the captain for this flight was David Butler, who was 50 years old, had about 13,100 total hours. And the first officer was Chad Levang, who was 34 years old, had about 8,000 total hours of flight time. The plane was a 14-year-old Boeing 737 with 40,541 hours and 21,511 cycles. And there were three flight attendants and 110 passengers on board this plane. So this incident, like I said, happened on December 20th, 2008. The incident itself happened around 6.18 p.m. That's when uh, the plane was taking off and rolled off the runway. So uh, I feel like I need to say that, just like kind of set the stage for what happened leading up to that. So the two pilots involved in this flight arrived at the Denver airport around 5 p.m. Denver time. So mm-hmm. about, what, an hour, 18 minutes before the incident. Like I said, this was about an hour before the flight scheduled departure time. The captain picked up the flight's dispatch paperwork from Continental's operations coordinator and performed an external pre-flight inspection. You know, I'm sure you've seen this before when you're on the plane, you look outside, maybe you'll see like the captain in, a, in a, like a high visibility safety vest walking around looking at the plane, you know, just checking things out, making sure everything's yeah. okay. Looks like a good plane. Right, yeah. Oh, yes, the plane. Uh, here are the engines. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Two of them. Yes. Uh, let me check. Yes, that's, that's the correct number. <laughs> we joke, but it's serious, right? You want to make sure everything's, everything's in working order. There's no, nothing, nothing unusual going yeah. on. So while he was doing that, the first officer went to the cockpit and performed pre-flight safety checks. And after these tasks were done, the captain joined the first officer in the cockpit, and they began to perform the standard departure preparations using the appropriate checklists. These tasks were finally completed at about 6.04 p.m. And the first officer contacted ramp control for pushback approval and advised they had picked up information Charlie from the ATIS. And we've talked about the ATIS before. It's the Automatic Terminal Information System. It's what broadcasts the weather. Well, it broadcasts general information, but specifically uh, they were picking up weather information. The ATIS mm-hmm. might also tell pilots what runways to expect for landing and takeoff. Let's just like general, like an FAQ for the yeah. airport. Like what's going on right this now? This is what- not... 
This is a one-way communication. Right. Yeah. It's just an automated broadcast. They just like tune it in. They listen. It's going to tell them the weather, runways, wind speed, stuff like that. When they checked the ATIS, it informed the pilots that the reported winds were from 270 degrees at 11 knots, which is about 12 miles an hour, 20 kilometers an hour. So when the winds are from 270 degrees, that means pretty much the winds are coming straight from the west because west is 270 mm -hmm. degrees. And the pilots were directed to runway 34 right, which means that they're taking off pretty much north. So it means that since they're taking off north and the winds are coming from the west, they're, they're taking off one direction and the wind is coming from their left, hitting them pretty much straight on from the left side. Straight on. Mm -hmm. But 20 kilometers per hour, that's not that much wind. No, especially not for uh, a plane of this size. It's it's not anything of note. Like nobody would even give this a second thought. Yeah. Normally what happens is, you know, when you're taking off like this and you get hit with a crosswind, uh, you just give it, the plane a little bit of rudder to compensate for this. That way, you know, mm -hmm. you, you stay centered on the runway and you take off appropriately. So yeah, just to summarize, 11 knots, really not a big deal. The crew went ahead and taxied to runway 3-4 right without a vent and they held short of the runway. At 6.14 p.m., air traffic control cleared the flight to enter the runway and hold. The pilots complied and then completed their before takeoff checklists and, you know, waited. At 6.16 p.m., so like two minutes later, the two pilots had the following mm -hmm. conversation. It's unknown which pilot says this first. One of them asks, what are the winds? And then the captain says, looks like some wind out there. First officer replies, yeah. Captain says, oh yeah, look at those clouds moving. You know, they're, they're sitting there waiting and they're looking at the clouds and they're noting the clouds are moving mm -hmm. really fast. A minute later, air traffic control informed the pilots that the wind was 270 degrees, so it's still coming from the west, at 27 knots, which is 31 miles an hour or 50 kilometers an hour. So it's significantly faster. Yeah. So it's still within guidelines. The pilots noted the wind increase, uh, you know, and they double check and their limit for crosswind takeoff is 33 knots on a clear dry runway. And the runway 34 right is clear and dry. What was it at the moment? So the wind at the moment is 27 knots and their limit is 33. Okay. I just want to give the equivalence for that. 27 knots is 31 miles an hour or 50 kilometers an hour. And 33 knots is 38 miles an hour or 61 kilometers an hour. So they're still, they're getting closer, but they're still under their limits. The first officer acknowledged the clearance. And as they begin the takeoff roll, the captain commented on the left crosswind at 27 knots. During the airplane's initial acceleration along the center line, the flight data recorder indicated increasing right rudder pedal inputs. So like I said, you know, since the wind's coming from the left, you know, when they're flying, they got to give it right rudder to keep the plane centered on the, on the runway. Mm -hmm. As they accelerated through 55 knots, so this is the plane speed, not the wind. So the plane's accelerating through 55 knots, which is 63 miles an hour or 102 kilometers an hour. The plane's heading began to move left. And the flight data recorder recorded a large right rudder input that peaked at 88%. So again, you know, they're getting hit with this wind from the left. So they're, they're you know, mashing on the right rudder to keep themselves uh, centered on the runway. So even though the right rudder input peaked at 15%, it was then reduced to 15%. And the flight data recorder recorded a left control wheel input. 50 to 15? 88 to 15%. Oh, 88 to 15. Yes. They're letting off the rudder is what you can infer from that. Mm -hmm. And at the same moment, the flight data recorder recorded a left control wheel input. The nose of the airplane moved right. However, as the plane accelerated through 85 knots, which is 98 miles an hour or 157 kilometers an hour, the nose reversed direction and began moving back to the left at about one degree per second. The leftward movement of the nose continued for about two seconds and was accompanied throughout its duration by another substantial right rudder pedal input. So you can tell already they're, they're kind of, you know, 
fighting with this wind a bit. Okay, so they're like going like a little bit and then trying to correct it and a little like exactly. back and forth. Is that how? exactly okay? This second large right rudder pedal input peaked at seventy two percent of available forward displacement at a speed of 90 knots and then decreased to 33%. So just like before, you know, they mash on it and they kind of let up as they're correcting. During the second large right rudder pedal input, the airplane's left turning motion slowed for about a second, but then the nose began moving rapidly to the left again. So like you said, you know, they're giving it the right rudder, it's kind of fixing it, but then it's going to the left again and again. The cockpit voice recorder recorded one of the pilots exclaiming, Jesus! And the flight data recorder recorded the beginning of a transition from left control wheel input to right control wheel input. At 6.18 and 15 seconds, the first officer gave an expletive and the airplane left the runway. The captain called to reject the takeoff. Engine power was reduced and the brakes were activated as well as the thrust reversers. They're off the runway at this point, Yeah, they have just left the runway at this point. Wait, you say off the runway is in there in the air? No, like they drove off the left side. Okay. They're on the ground turning left off the runway and not onto a taxiway, just like onto the ground. And how fast are they going at this point? They're going around 100 miles an hour. But they're not past what, V1? Is that what it's called? Correct. No, they are not there yet. But it doesn't matter because they've left the runway. Like V1 has to deal with your, <laughs> the amount of space left and your stopping power on the runway. Once you leave the runway, all oh, bets okay, are off. Because, yeah. you know, the surface is different. You know, it's not, yeah, smooth. Yeah, it's just yeah. a totally different environment. So they left the left side of runway 34 right about 2,600 feet from the approach end and crossed the taxiway Whiskey Charlie, and an airport service road before coming to a stop on a heading of about 315 degrees. The plane lost electrical power while it was still at a speed of about 90 knots. So as a result, the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder stopped recording at 618 and 27 seconds. So that's about 12 seconds after they left the runway, the recorder stopped. But how did, why did it lose electrical power? It loses electrical power because everything that's happening at this point is so violent. I believe the left engine falls off the plane, like physically, you know, is removed from the plane and the right oh engine catches fire. Whoa. Yeah, so at this point, that, yeah, that's why there's no more electrical. The engines aren't working anymore. And it's because it goes off the side and it go, and it starts taking off and then it clumps back down? Yeah, there's because it's not smooth. You know, it's not a road yeah. or anything. It's just the ground and the ground isn't level. You know, if you think about it, you know, Denver's not near, it's not close to the Rockies, but, you know, it's still... <laughs> Close enough to mountains, there's still the the terrain's uneven and there's drops, not huge drops, but there's, you know, tens of feet worth of drops in certain parts of this ground. Mm-hmm. So what happens is like it hits one of those, kind of like a ramp, you know, it's like if you're driving your car off, <laughs> off of a ramp, except it's a plane. <laughs> oh. uh, so it goes airborne for a little while and then ends up slamming back onto the ground. And it's because of all of this jostling that the left engine falls off and the right engine catches fire, which is why electrical power stops. And in fact, you know, there are post-accident interviews that were done with the passengers and they indicate that the airplane, you know, was as it was crossing this uneven terrain, it became airborne. And then, you know, they all got slammed back to mm-hmm. the ground when it hit the ground again. The pilots stated there were a couple of very painful bumps before the airplane came to a stop and that they were either dazed or knocked out for, you know, a couple minutes after the airplane stopped. And they made no immediate attempt to get up or leave the cockpit. They got knocked out? Yeah, I mean, it's like they probably got hit really hard in the head. To the point where it's like they're so dazed, they either are knocked out briefly mm-hmm. or they don't know what's going on. You know, just like really getting hit in the head so hard that it's just like you can't do anything. Just like in an absolute daze, you're not sure maybe even if you're conscious or not. So, you know, it takes them one or two minutes before they're able to like snap back to it and, you know, realize that they need to leave the plane. Yeah, it happened to me once when I was in Did elementary it? school playing soccer. I was chasing after kid with soccer ball. I guess I tripped. All of a sudden I was standing by the water fountain and the t- PE teacher was holding me up. <laughs> like, oh, jeez. It had been like 30, I don't know if I actually passed out. I was just like 
oh, where am I? My head hurts. That's probably something comparable to what happened to them, right? They can't say if they passed out or not. Yeah. That's scary, right? Yeah. The first officer stated that he could hear activity from the cabin and considered making an announcement, but he was hindered because the cockpit was completely dark. Because remember, there's no, <laughs> there's no electrical. It's December 20th and it's six o'clock in Denver, so it's probably dark. It's dark. Yeah, it's dark outside. And in fact, uh, I'm going to get a little tangent here. Uh, because it's dark and because, you know, they weren't on a runway or a taxiway or anything, the fire department had to try to find them. <laughs> you know, when the fire oh. engines get, you know, called out, they don't know necessarily where to go because the Denver airport's huge. I want to say, I'm going off the top of my head here, I want to say it's like 53 square miles that the airport encompasses. Whoa. So, you know, when the uh, emergency services are activated, they know that a plane was leaving runway 34 right, so they head out in that direction and kind of start, you know, looking to see where is it. But it's on fire. Right, so it's on fire, so they are able to find it. But still, you know, seeing a fire from a, <laughs> a distance, you might not be able to see it. You might think it's lights. You got to get kind of close to it. Yeah, you said it's clear, so there's no snow on the ground, right? So there was actually snow on the ground. It wasn't like a lot of snow, but there was a layer of snow covering the ground in the area. Okay. I'm trying to visualize like this fire truck off-roading in the snow. <laughs> yeah. And the um, when the plane departed the runway, it actually came really close to hitting like one of the fire substations <laughs> that's on the airport property. So it wasn't too far from one of the, um, the fire stations, but mm-hmm. still they have, you know, they have to go out and look for it. Getting back to the pilots and what they're going through at this point. By the time they left the cockpit, uh, the cabin crew had evacuated all of the passengers with the help of some deadheading pilots who were on board on the flight. And, you know, we've talked about this before. It's like pilots who aren't active. They're not flying. Like they're, they're getting back to their home or, yeah. you know, they're just, they just happen to be on the plane. The first officer and a deadheading captain were the last to exit the airplane. There were no fatalities, but there were six serious injuries and 41 minor injuries as well. There was a post-crash fire, but everyone evacuated before the fire reached the cabin. But the fire, along with the damage from the crash, resulted in a hull loss for the aircraft. You know, they can't fix it. The airplane's just written off. What about that engine that fell on the ground? Oh, no. that's uh, everything's, <laughs> everything's destroyed. Don't, don't reuse any of that stuff. The fire damage is actually really extensive on this plane. It's, uh, I'll, I'll post some images of it on social media, but it looks really bad. It's good that everyone got off before uh, the fire spread. Mm-hmm. So the investigation was carried out by the NTSB. And during post-accident interviews, the captain told investigators that the takeoff roll initially felt normal. But as the airplane accelerated through about 90 knots, he, quote, felt the rear end of the airplane slip out hard to the right and the wheels lose traction. It felt like a slick patch of runway or a strong gust of wind or a combination of both. Mm. The captain described the sensation by stating that it felt like someone put their hand on the tail of the airplane and weather vaned it to the left. Weather vaning, that's a term that they'll use to describe like a plane getting pushed by the air. Kind of like how you can tell what direction a wind's going by, you know, when you look at a weather vane because the wind's pushing it. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. The captain said he tried to counter the airplane's movements with full right rudder inputs, but the airplane continued to track hard toward the left. And like we talked about, the flight data recorder shows that. You know, he was he gave it 88%, mm-hmm. 75%. So, you know, he's really trying to use the rudder and the airplane's still going towards the left. He indicated that as the airplane neared the edge of the runway, he tried to use the tiller to steer the plane back to the right, but was not successful. And the tiller is like, on the captain's side, he's got like a little wheel he can turn that turns the wheels under the nose of the plane. He was trying to use that tiller to like turn the wheel, <laughs> the nose wheels to the right. Oh, the wheel. I was like the wheel, like the, so it's like a normal steering wheel. <laughs> like, how can I describe it? It's, you know, normally a steering wheel you think of, like you hold it in front of you. This is to the left and mm-hmm. it's, the wheel's like flat and it's got like a little handle that sticks up and he's like cranking it. Kind of like a, what you would imagine, like a, like a water spigot valve, but 
round. Okay. And it just turns the wheels, the other... Yeah, the wheels that are like under the nose landing gear, those wheels. Only those wheels or just turn like all the wheels on the plane? Only the nose because everything else would turn. Just like when you turn your wheel on your car, it only turns the front wheels. It doesn't turn the back one. Same idea. Okay, duh. I didn't know they could do that. Yeah, normally they, you're not supposed to use it at this speed. You know, normally it's only used when you're going really, <laughs> like really slow. Like if you're like if you're being, you know, backed out of the gate, or you know, you're taxiing at a really slow speed. At low taxi speeds, only up to about 20 knots, according to the Continental Manual. That's like the maximum we're supposed to use that steering tiller. And by this point, you know, they were going about 90 knots, so it was way too fast. Mm-hmm. Boeing and Continental's airplane flight manual specified the maximum nose wheel steering effectiveness is available with rudder pedal steering when above normal taxi speeds, and that during the takeoff roll, the airplane should be kept on the runway center line through the use of rudder pedal steering and inputs to the rudder surface. So they're explicitly saying you're not supposed to use the the tiller when you're taking off. But I think if I had to speculate, what was probably going through his mind was he was trying anything. In his mind, he probably thought the rudder was not effective enough, and he was trying to use the tiller to Uh, help as well to try to keep the airplane centered and back to the right. Like, I feel like this kind of sounds like maybe he was doing the wrong thing. And he was doing the wrong thing, but he was troubleshooting on the fly. Like, it's, you know, things are happening very quickly. So he's trying the right rudder. It's not working. So he's like, well, let me try the tiller too. Maybe the two of them together, even though I'm not supposed to do this, maybe the two of them together will keep the plane, you know, on the runway. The NTSB looked into the meteorological conditions at the airport and the official weather observations at Denver are made by an automated surface observing system. They call this the ASOS or ASOS. The sensors for this are located east of the main passenger terminal near the middle of the airfield at a height of about 33 feet above the ground. So, like I said before, the Denver airport is huge, like I think roughly 53 square miles. It's important to note that this system that's observing and giving these weather observations, like Uh I said, was east of the main passenger terminal. Runway 34 right is west of the main passenger terminal. So this sensor that they're getting data from is two miles away from the runway. And the wind was blowing west, right? It's blowing east. It's blowing from the west. The runway 34 right is experiencing the wind before it gets to the weather station. Yeah. So if it was starting to pick up, they would get it later. Correct. However, there's a little more to this. I want to dig into a little more to how this sensor works. Okay. So the way the sensor works is it samples wind direction and speed every second. And then the system computes and records various running averages. The two-minute average wind direction speed is the wind value that's recorded and disseminated in the meteorological aerodrome reports and the ATIS reports. These are the official weather observations around the time of the accident. So what it's doing is it's sampling the wind every second, recording averages, and then it it records a two-minute average wind direction and speed, and then that's what's posted. So it's useful in telling you what the average wind is, but it's two miles away from the runway, and it's not an instantaneous reading. So if the wind picks up really fast. Is that, is that what happened? <laughs> or think about this. Let's say you have, you know, when it's recording this wind speed, let's say one second you have a gust of 50 knots. And then the next two seconds it goes down, let's say to zero, kind of improbable. It's going to average that out and tell you that your wind speed is what? 17 knots over those three seconds. Yeah. It doesn't tell you that, hey, there was a really big gust in here. Like any anything that's really high or really low gets averaged out. So you just end up with kind of an average speed instead of really knowing where your peaks and your valleys are. And I guess I'm thinking wind being a little more like constant, but I guess it could just be like, right, like a big... We're going to get into this, why this is important in just a second. You're you're on the right track, Chris. Uh, you're, you're thinking exactly <laughs> correctly. Uh, I need to give a little more information and background before we get to uh, what you're talking about right there. 
If you're a fan of Black Box Down, you might try adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation since obviously you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts. I know, right? Jordan Harbinger show covers a wide range of topics with heavy-hitting guests. In recent months, Jordan's interviewed a YouTuber who exposes scammy gurus and a researcher who studies what makes people vulnerable to conspiracy theories. There's something for everyone here, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. But one constant throughout the whole podcast is Jordan's ability to pull bits of wisdom from his guests. So no matter what, you're learning something here. Uh, we really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Fall is always a busy scramble, but one thing I can cut from my list is going to the grocery store thanks to HelloFresh. HelloFresh recipes save time you'd otherwise spend meal planning, shopping, and chopping so you can get back to what matters with HelloFresh. You get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. And the fall harvest is officially on with HelloFresh. You can count on seasonal recipes like pumpkin cinnamon rolls as well as fresh, high-quality ingredients that go from the farm to your front door in less than a week. But HelloFresh also offers really great value. It's over 30% cheaper than shopping at the store. And thanks to their pre-portioned ingredients, you don't have to worry about food waste or buying more than you need. I was talking about how cathartic it is after a day to like sit down, do this project. And when you're done with it, this project, I mean cooking. And when you're done, you get to eat it. It's so delicious. Plus, I mean, honestly, it's great. I, you know, I don't like to go out. I don't like going to the store. It's like everything comes straight to you. It's exactly what you need. You don't feel guilty throwing away a bunch of stuff that you didn't use. It's such an easy, convenient way to make something delicious and feel accomplished and full when you're done. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14. Use code BlackBoxDown14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. That's up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown14 with code BlackBoxDown14. It's crazy how fast the prices of things are rising. There's gas, groceries, clothes. All the experts are saying it's going to get worse before it gets better. Great. Another thing to worry about. So, you know, I'm looking to save wherever I can. And I started with my auto insurance. I started with Gabby. Gabby compares your current policy to current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers. There's a one true comparison platform with fast, verifiable quotes, not ballpark guesses. And Gabby only shows you policies that are the same or better than your current coverage. Plus, it's free to use and they never sell your info. So no annoying spam or robocalls. I can't stress how easy it is. I tried it myself. Just log in with your current insurance provider. It looks at what insurance you have. It shows you exact quotes from other insurance providers. I think I saw four. I think I, I think I saw four. And, you know, what the price for those policies are. And it compares it. You can see right next to what you're paying, what you could be paying. In my case, uh, what I had was already the best rate. So I stuck with my current insurance. But, you know, you should check. You might be able to find one that's cheaper for you. So, you know, I'm not the only one who loves Gabby. Gabby has been featured in TechCrunch, Forbes, and USA Today. Uh, start saving on your auto insurance today. Go to gabby.com slash blackboxdown to start saving today. It's totally free. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash blackboxdown. Gabby.com slash blackboxdown. Before we continue, I uh, just want to let you know we're conducting a survey to gather some information about your listening habits for the show. If you enjoy the content, stuff like that, hopefully you do. Uh, super fast, takes less than five minutes. It'll really help us out a lot. You can find a link to the survey in the description. We're going to talk about the weather leading up to this accident for just a little bit, but, and then I'll, I'll explain what's going on here. At 5.53, which is about 25 minutes before the accident, the wind was from 280 degrees at 11 knots, with peak winds from 290 degrees at 27 knots recorded at 5. At 6.34 p.m., the wind was from 290 degrees at 24 knots, 
with peak wind from 280 degrees at 36 knots, which was recorded at 623. A review of the ASOS one-minute wind data indicated that at the time the airplane departed from the runway, the wind was from 282 degrees at 18 knots with gusts of 23 knots. So again, these numbers are all within range. These are all within reason. The plane should still be able to take off. However, there's a weather phenomenon that's known as mountain wave. Remember, we talked about the Rockies. The Rockies are not right next to the Denver airport. They're on, you know, the Denver airport's east of Denver. The Rockies are west of Denver. So it's some distance away. So I'm going to talk about this mountain wave activity. Mountain wave activity can occur in high terrain with wind speeds increasing with rising terrain, reaching at least 20 knots at peak elevations and with little variation in the wind direction flowing across the mountain ridge. A stable layer is often found above the mountains. And under these conditions, the airflow over the mountain ridge produces a harmonic oscillation. It's almost like a sine wave or like a vortex of some kind. The wind's coming over, hitting the mountain, and then creating this oscillation that can land hundreds of miles away from the mountain itself. Okay, so it like wind hits the mountain and then begins to like wobble? Yeah, think about it like it, it's almost like tumbling. It's like a, a vortex. It's just like spinning around. You, do you have a front-loading washing machine? Well, I don't have a washing machine right now because <laughs> I just moved. Okay. But sure. <laughs> okay, well, you know how you put like your clothes in the front of the washing machine if you have a front-loader and it like spins around and tumbles? Or the same thing with the dryer, actually. It's like that. That's what the wind's doing. Uh -huh. It's just kind of like tumbling around in a circle. And it starts out at a really high elevation and then lands hundreds of miles away from the mountain. That's kind of scary. So this is the mountain wave phenomenon of wind. And under extreme uh -huh. conditions, these elements can result in turbulence, strong downslope winds, an atmospheric pressure jump, and rotor clouds. The mountain wave-related concerns for takeoffs and or landings include a loss of directional control on or near the runway. And as a result of this... This is answering your earlier question. Localized surface wind gusts in excess of 50 knots are not unusual. So now we're talking about a wind speed that is dangerous. Yeah. If the maximum for takeoff is 33 and it can hit 50. Yeah, then you should not be taking off in that. And it's kind of a, a strange phenomenon that at the time and even to this day, it's not fully understood. We, we know a lot more about it nowadays. But at the time, there was research being done on it in the Boulder, Colorado area. But the area near Denver had not been well studied, so there really wasn't that much information regarding the magnitude and frequency of mountain wave-related wind or periods of moderate gustiness at the Denver airport. This is something that they were kind of starting to look at and try to figure out. We really didn't understand it yet. And this incident actually helped further a lot of the, the knowledge that we have nowadays about it. So to assess whether mountain waves could have played a role in the gusty surface wind conditions at the Denver airport at the time of the accident, the National Center for Atmospheric Research simulated conditions around that time. The results showed that several gusts moving across the airport, one of which exceeded 68 knots, which is 78 miles an hour or 126 kilometers an hour. So they showed in their simulations that gusts of this speed moved across the airport between 6.08 and 6.18 p.m., which is when this incident happened. Uh-huh. And you said, set, what was it, 78, 78 miles, miles an hour? That's a hurricane gets, what? Like a, That's like a two hurricane? In order for a storm to be considered a hurricane, a Category 1 hurricane, it has to have sustained winds of at least 74 miles an hour. So, yeah, if this is 78 miles an hour, yeah, this would be a hurricane speed wind, but it's not sustained. It's just a gust that comes through. Which actually, I guess, is worse because it's, like, harder to predict. Even, right. It know? just comes out of nowhere. <laughs> Seemingly, it comes yeah. out of nowhere. And on top of that, there was another strong gust of 45 knots, which was also indicated moving across the accident site between 6.14 and 6.16 p.m., which is when the captain 
commented about the wind and the clouds moving. Oh, so he saw it. Right. He could see like, oh, the clouds are moving really fast. Remember, they had that conversation while they were waiting to uh-huh. take off. So you know, they knew something was going on, but the weather data didn't that they were receiving didn't reflect that at the time. Because again, gusts get averaged out. When you look at, if it's just a very quick mm-hmm. gust that comes through and you compare it to everything else, then it's like it gets watered down by the numbers. Not our gusts. <laughs> Not this gust. That, that, that's gust with a T. I guess I am gust with Gustavo G. Gust. gust. <laughs> this is kind of confusing. <laughs> you get, you get you, we don't, we don't, our gust doesn't okay. get averaged down. You get full gusts at this podcast. Yes, 100%. So the NTSB used the data available from the flight data recorder to estimate the winds that were present during the accident sequence. And their results estimated that the winds at the time of the accident were between 30 and 45 knots from the west. And a peak gust of 45 knots, which is 52 miles an hour, 83 kilometers an hour, occurred at 6, 18, and 12 seconds, which was the same time the right rudder pedal began moving from 72% down to the neutral position. Performance calculations indicated that the airplane's rudder was capable of producing enough aerodynamic force to offset the weather vaning tendency created by the winds mm-hmm. that the airplane encountered during the accident takeoff roll. So it was just really bad timing. Like the captain was fighting with the wind with his rudder. And right when he thought he had mm-hmm. it under control and let go of the rudder, that's when they got hit with the peak wind gust, mm-hmm. which is what pushed them to the left. And then again, if I had to speculate and guess at that point, you know, he's like fighting with it, let's go, thinks he has it, then it starts going left again. At that point, he might start thinking his rudder's not working. Yeah, because he was like, oh, I just settled it. And all of a sudden, yeah, that's why he started using the... Right, the tiller. So, you know, he might not see, he might not understand what's going on. It seems to him from his perspective that he can't fight the wind, that the wind uh-huh. just keeps pushing him to the left. I know I keep saying these things and it sounds like the captain did the wrong thing. Or it's easy to speculate like, oh, he shouldn't have done that. He should have kept fighting it. Because like I said, it's the rudder was capable, even though this was above their safe takeoff speed for the wind, they should have still been able to fight it. There's a statistic that I found here when we were researching this that I want to give. So the NTSB looked at all 737 takeoffs. I forget for what range of time, but they looked at over 250,000 737 takeoffs to see the kinds of crosswinds that pilots would experience. Out of 250,327 takeoffs, only four of them experienced crosswinds greater than 30 knots, which is 0.002%. So chances are, in a pilot's entire career, they will never take off in a crosswind greater than 30 knots. And they hit, what, 50? 45, I believe. 45? Yeah. Yeah. They hit a gust of about 45 knots. So chances are, this is a phenomenon that a pilot will never encounter. <laughs> it's like, it's so... You know, again, we talk about this so often in, in this in this podcast, right? It's like this was just the perfect combination of things that went wrong. Like none of this should have happened. Mm-hmm. And it just all converged yeah. into creating this incident, which luckily everyone survived from. I feel like this is the kind, this is my favorite kind of episode to do. Because everyone survives and a lot uh-huh. is learned from this. Like there, there, there is so much... <laughs> about mountain waves and about wind shears and about wind gusts that we now understand and can take into account for that wasn't necessarily understood. Even in 2008, this wasn't that long ago. So I feel like this is best case scenario for a podcast for us. Yeah, no one was hurt, but then now they're like, okay, we have to figure this stuff out. Right, because it's obviously a problem. It happened. And they're like looking, they're looking into how this happened and why it happened. And then, yeah. Yeah. So there are 32 low-level wind shear alert system sensors located around the airport property. And the number two sensor recorded a wind speed of 40 knots two minutes before the accident. These sensors record wind every 10 seconds 
and the other speeds recorded were mostly in the mid to high 30s around the time of the accident. So it was pretty high. This information is displayed to air traffic controllers in the tower at Denver International. So on top of the regular, you know, average wind speed that, you know, was reported by the controller to the, the pilots, the air traffic controller does also have this wind shear alert system that does report more about the gusts. And the NTSB believes that the controller who cleared flight 1404 for takeoff on 34 right was not monitoring that display. And he assumed 34 right would be safe to mm. use considering other planes had recently safely taken off from the same runway. So there was gust data that was being displayed for the controller. He just might not have been looking at it. Okay, so there are ways to determine if they're big gusts. It's just the main one everyone looks at is the average. Yes. And I believe, uh, I'm going off memory here, I believe in post-accident interviews, the controller said that he didn't report on the gust data because it wasn't requested. Like he didn't get asked for it, which is, Mm. I don't know. I don't know. That's kind of shady to me. (laughs) It's like if you see gust data, you may as well (laughs) get it. But who knows? I, I mean, I can't, I'm not a pilot and I'm definitely not an air traffic controller. So I can't speak to that. There's another question here that I feel like you haven't asked. I was kind of thinking you might ask it. Oh, my bad. (laughs) (laughs) The question I thought you might ask is, don't airplanes normally take off into the wind? Why were they taking off on 3-4 right? Wasn't there another runway they could have taken off on that would have put them into the wind? So they weren't having to... Yeah, well, I had thought about that, but yeah. So there are two east to west runways at Denver International. These are the designations for heading in the west direction. There's runway 26 and runway 25. Runway 25 is right behind 3-4 right where they took off from. When I was first looking into this and when I was first, you know, reading up on this incident, you know, that's one of the first things I thought. It's like, I looked at the airport diagram and I thought, you know, if the winds are coming from the west, why aren't they taking off on 2-5? There's a whole slew of reasons we could speculate on that. Denver has more north-south runways, so maybe the, to keep up with the amount of traffic they were processing, they may have been still flying on the north-south runways. I don't know. I can't speak to that specifically, but what I can speak to is, at the time, there was also an unofficial runway selection policy at the Denver airport, which would use the runway configuration that provided the greatest operational advantage for the airport at crosswind speeds up to 20 knots. This unofficial policy also indicated that air traffic control personnel were to consider using a different runway when requested by a pilot or when crosswind speed exceeded 25 knots. Requests for an alternate departure runway were rare here and mostly occurred when crosswinds exceeded 30 knots. So one of the runways used for departures on this day was one of them that I mentioned. It was runway 25, which would have been the best runway to use for the wind direction and speed recorded around the time of the accident. But because of the policy and because the pilots and controllers were unaware of the high wind gusts, they continued to use 3-4 right. The NTSB concludes that the Denver Air Traffic Control runway selection policy does not clearly account for crosswind components when selecting a runway configuration. So they could have used the other runway, but they didn't because in their mind, everything was going fine with 3-4 right. So they just kept using it. And it was normal. Right. If the pilot had requested a different runway, they could have used a different runway, but everyone just kind of kept using the same runway uh, and just dealing with the crosswind. The NTSB also found issues with the seats in the cockpit. Both pilot seats in the accident airplane failed during the accident sequence. Post-accident examination of the seats revealed that both seats' crotch-restraining strap attachment points were fractured in an upward direction and that both seat height adjustment mechanisms had failed in a downward direction, which caused them to bottom out during the impact sequence. that how they hit their head? It's possible. So when it bottoms out, it's like when they come down onto the ground, like the shock absorbers in the seat didn't work and the bottom of the seat like hits the floor basically. Oh, the butt. Right. 
but but like I said, also the crotch restraining strap attachment point was fractured in an upward direction. So you know it failed in both ways. <laughs> they could have gone up yeah. and then slammed back down. You know, both these failures indicate the crash forces were in excess of the structural capabilities of the seat. Both pilots complained of back injuries after the accident. Uh, medical records indicated that the captain sustained multiple lumbar and thoracic spinal fractures. In 2005, the FAA issued a rule that required all transport category airplanes to be retrofitted with passenger and flight attendant seats that meet the 16G dynamic impact requirements codified in 14 CFR 25.562. It's just the rule number. <laughs> I'm just going to kind of gloss over that. Mm -hmm. The cockpit seats, however, were not required to meet these standards. Instead, the cockpit seats in this plane were required to withstand forward loads of 9G, downward loads of 6G, and upward loads of 3G. So... What? Yeah, it didn't quite meet the standards yet. So it, it could be because, like I said, this was an older plane. Okay, but all the passenger seats did, but not the pilots? So... The report doesn't specifically call out or say anything about the passenger seats. All it says is that the cockpit seats were not required to meet these standards. Okay. So I'm going to presume that the passenger seats were okay, especially because most passengers were okay and there weren't that many serious injuries. So I'm going to say that the passenger seats were probably within standards. All right. So we're going to go through the, the findings here. So there's a few of them. So there was no evidence that indicated any pre-accident failure of the accident airplane's power plants, structures, or systems, including the nose wheel steering system. So again, that's just saying everything was fine with the plane. They specifically call out the nose wheel steering system because since the captain had tried to use the tiller, when they were first investigating this accident, they saw that there was like a long black skid mark on the runway. Uh, and they weren't sure why that was caused. It's because the captain had tried to turn the tiller and the nose wheel was turned to the right, and the airplane kept going left, so mm. it just kind of dragged the nose across the runway, which left a long skid mark. So they're just calling out the nose wheel <laughs> steering system to say yeah. it wasn't malfunctioning, it didn't lock up, that's not what caused this problem. Given the wind-related information the pilots had, their decision to proceed with a takeoff on runway 3-4 right as planned was reasonable. Again, not blaming the pilots, based on the information that they had. Mountain wave conditions were present at the time of the accident and resulted in strong westerly winds and very localized intermittent wind gusts as high as 45 knots that crossed the airplane's path during the takeoff ground roll. It is likely that the significant difference between the 11-knot winds reported by Denver International Airport's Airport Terminal Information Service broadcast and the 27-knot wind information provided to the pilots by the Denver Air Traffic Control local controller with their departure clearance was the result of the timing of the observations, the placement of the wind sensors, and variations in the local wind field caused by the mountain wave winds. So again, this kind of recapping some of the things we said. There's a difference because of the wind sensors being in different places. The wind was different in different parts of the airport. Mountain wave was going on. Again, just like all these things kind of combined into to cause this accident. Yeah, that's... Yeah, it's just bad yeah. luck. The captain's use of tiller and full right control wheel in the three seconds before the excursion likely resulted from acute stress stemming from a sudden unexpected threat, perceived lack of control, and extreme time pressure. That's kind of... What I was speculating about earlier, the same kind of thing, you know, trying to figure out what the captain was thinking when he did the things that he did. Yeah. The unexpectedly strong and gusty crosswinds the airplane encountered as it accelerated during the takeoff roll made maintaining directional control during this takeoff a more difficult control task than the captain was accustomed to dealing with. However, had the captain immediately reapplied significant right rudder pedal input as the airplane was continuing its left turning motion, the airplane would not have departed the runway. So again, saying... What we talked about earlier, the rudder was strong enough to counter this crosswind if he had just kept applying it. Mm -hmm. 
The captain's initiation of a rejected takeoff was delayed by about two to four seconds because he was occupied with the nose wheel steering tiller and right control wheel input, both of which were ineffective and inappropriate for steering the airplane. If air traffic control personnel and pilots operating at airports located downwind of mountainous terrain had sufficient airport-specific information regarding the localized and transient nature of strong and gusty wind associated with the mountain wave and downslope conditions, they would be able to make more informed runway selection decisions. So saying, you know, we got to figure out how to monitor these mountain waves and then get that information to the air traffic control so they can take it into account. Uh If the accident pilots had received the most adverse available wind information, uh, which was displayed as airport wind on the Denver International Airport Air Traffic Control Tower Local Controller's Ribbon Display Terminal, which did indicate a 35-knot crosswind with 40-knot gusts, the captain would likely have decided to delay the departure or request a different runway because the resultant crosswind component exceeded Continental's 33-knot crosswind guidelines. So like we were saying earlier, there was adequate information available to air traffic control but they either didn't look at it or didn't pass that information on to the pilot. Yeah. Did they get in trouble for it? I don't know for certain. When we look at this, we look at it from like the plane and the pilot perspective. I don't remember reading anything about the air traffic controller getting into trouble. If I remember right, he didn't do anything against protocol at the time. I think since then, protocol has changed. Okay. (laughs) I think at the time, pilots had to request that data if they wanted it. So I think the... Controller was under no obligation to give that information, but he probably should have. So it's the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, you didn't do anything wrong, but you didn't do the right thing. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, totally. So because Continental Simulator training did not replicate the ground level disturbances and gusting crosswinds that often occur at or near runway surface, and it is unlikely that the accident captain had previously encountered gusting surface crosswinds like those he encountered the night of the accident, the captain was not adequately prepared to respond to the changes in heading encountered during his takeoff. So, like we said, pilots almost never encounter this. It's so rare. And even in simulator training, they didn't go over this because, again, this is a really rare occurrence that they encountered. Because there are no standards for the development of enhanced crosswind guidelines for transport category airplanes, Boeing did not adequately consider the dynamic handling qualities of the Boeing 737 during takeoff or landing in strong and gusty crosswinds. It is likely that the enhanced crosswind guidelines developed by other manufacturers are similarly deficient. So saying that, yeah, maybe Boeing didn't take this into account, but we don't think any other manufacturer does either. Again, this is the kind of thing that they really learn from. The accident pilot's injuries would have likely been lessened or eliminated if their seats had been designed to meet the crashworthiness requirement of 14 code of federal regulations 25.562 to which other airplane seats are designed. So again, their seats should have been better and up to code, but they weren't. Mm -hmm. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the captain's cessation of right rudder input, which was needed to maintain directional control of the airplane about four seconds before the excursion, when the airplane encountered a strong and gusty crosswind that exceeded the captain's training and experience. Contributing to the accident were the following factors. An air traffic control system that did not require or facilitate the dissemination of key available wind information to the air traffic controllers and pilots, and inadequate crosswind training in the airline industry due to deficient simulator wind gust modeling. So that kind of covers what you were asking about the air traffic control earlier, Mm -hmm. you know, where they didn't require or facilitate the dissemination of that information. All right, I've got a couple of recommendations here. Conduct research into and document the effects of mountain wave and downslope conditions at airports, such as Denver International Airport, 
that are located downwind of mountainous terrain and identify potential mountain wave-related hazards to ground operations at those airports and disseminate the results to pilots and airport air traffic control personnel to allow for more informed runway selection decisions. So just, hey, we need to learn about mountain waves and we need to get that information out. Mm -hmm. Archive all low-level wind shear alert system data obtained from Denver International Airport and other airports that experience similar wind conditions and make those data available for additional research and the potential future development of an improved low-level wind shear alert system algorithm for crosswind and gusty wind alerts on air traffic control tower ribbon display terminals. So just start save all the data and analyze it so they can make better alerts, which is what you want to hear. Mm -hmm. Modify Federal Aviation Administration Order 7110.65 to require air traffic controllers at airports with multiple sources of wind information to provide pilots with the maximum wind component, including gusts that the flight could encounter. So this covers what we talked about earlier. Now the tower does yeah. have to tell them what the wind gusts are, where they are. It's not optional anymore. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, good. That's what you want to hear. Like, I feel like this sounds like a really scary incident because it seems like it was such a freak accident that nothing could have been done. But now you hear like, oh, they did actually try to address it and do things to keep this from happening again. Require air traffic control towers to locally develop and implement written runway selection programs that proactively consider current and developing wind conditions and include clearly defined crosswind components, including wind gusts, when considering operational advantage with respect to runway selection. Be better about choosing your runway and updating it when the winds change. Mm -hmm. Gather data on surface winds at a sample of major U.S. airports when high wind conditions and significant gusts are present and use these data to develop realistic gusty crosswind profiles for use in pilot simulator training programs. Again, another thing you want to hear, let's get real data into the simulators and train on it. Yeah, better training. Mm -hmm. Require operators to incorporate the realistic gusty crosswind profiles developed into their pilot simulator training programs. Again, kind of the same thing. Once realistic gusty crosswind profiles are developed, develop a standard methodology, including pilot-in-the-loop testing for transport category airplane manufacturers to establish empirically-based type-specific maximum gusting crosswind limitations for transport category airplanes that account for wind gusts. So let's just test it and <laughs> come up with very specific crosswind limitations. Once a methodology as asked for in the previous recommendation has been developed, require manufacturers as transport category airplanes to develop type-specific maximum crosswind takeoff limitations that account for wind gusts. Work with U.S. airline operators to review and analyze operational flight data to identify factors that contribute to encounters with excessive winds and use this information to develop and implement additional strategies for reducing the likelihood of wind-related runway excursions. The last one, require cockpit crew seats installed in newly manufactured airplanes that were type certified before 1988 to meet the crashworthiness standards contained in 14 code of federal regulations 25.562. So kind of close that loophole that allowed these pilots to sit on seats that didn't meet this regulation. Yeah. So that's it. I mean, that's pretty much everything for Continental Flight 1404. It doesn't really relate to it, but I don't know if you remember uh, several episodes ago, God, a while ago now. The Dallas one? Well, not the Dallas one. That was a microburst. We covered uh, a crash of a S Singapore Airlines 747 that hit construction equipment on the runway when it was taking off. Oh, yeah. If you remember, those pilots took off on the wrong runway because they were distracted because they were trying to take mm -hmm. off before the crosswinds got too great for them to take off. Like they were also kind of a, thinking about crosswind at the time there. Because if you remember, a typhoon was moving in and they were trying to get out before the typhoon came. Yeah, yeah. So crosswinds are really dangerous for a plane. 
Like you, if you if you haven't thought about it yet, if you think about it, that vertical stabilizer, and I think we covered this in that other episode, that vertical stabilizer is just like a solid piece of plane that sticks straight up. So when a crosswind hits it, it really, you know, affects it. It's a large surface area to be hit with wind and can turn the plane left or right. So, they, you know, it's really a big problem that they need to account for. Yeah. But yeah, I think there was a lot that was learned from Continental 1404. We understand a lot more about mountain waves nowadays. There's a lot better wind shear and crosswind data reporting. And that information is given out to the pilots a lot more quickly and efficiently. A lot of changes made, a lot of, you know, behind the scenes changes that were made that as a passenger, you probably never think about just Mm -hmm. to try to keep this kind of thing from happening again and try to make flying as safe as possible. But that's it. Uh, We'll be back again next week with another episode. I just want to remind you one more time, please give us a follow on social media at blackboxdownpod. We'll post supplemental information. You'll be, I'll post an image that shows you yeah. what the snow look like on the ground. And you'll be fully informed of, you know, uh, the full uh, 100% gusts. Yes, 100%. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we will be back again next week. Bye.